This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Palgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Agency in Open Worlds. Air Frying. Alphonse Bertillon. And Number Stations. Welcome to the island you only think you remember. Welcome to the island is the first adventure anthology for the third edition of the Over the Edge RPG. It features four original storylines by award-winning authors, each with hooks for different character types, making it easy to bring the action to your campaign when and where it's needed. Launch brand new stories, add intriguing complications to existing arcs, or create exciting one-shots that bring the weird to your gaming table. Take a road trip with an ominous twist. Overthrow the government. Explore the place you only think you remember in Welcome to the Island. It's available now from Atlas Games. Learn more at atlas-games.com backslash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. The show notes you only think you remember. The thump of dice, the rattle of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos alert us to the fact that we are in the ever-so-swank, ultra-modern confines of the gaming hut, where this time around for a GM screen, we have a, a sleek, beautiful, new, fresh GM screen that unfolds as a slipcase, uh, for example, from around the Yellow King role-playing game. Ooh. And um, we have uh, nice uh, parquet floors. Everything's looking ultra-modern and swanky because we are going to look at the most ultra-modern of questions, a question coming from beloved patron backer Trung Boy, who asks, what tips, tools, and or guidance would you provide when it comes to running an open-world, brackets, open-ended game without removing player agency. And as is our won't, uh, we figure out what the heck we're talking about by uh, asking ourselves what some terms mean. So Ken, open-ended, what are we talking about here? Is this different than Sandbox? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, I think that up until then, I would have thought, yeah, this is Sandbox. But then he says, without removing player agency. And of course, the characteristic of Sandbox is that it's pretty much all player agency. So I have to think that an open-ended game must mean that you have a notion that at the end of the game, the players will take control of something they've built? What do you think Trung means? Uh, well, I, I think we're talking about sandbox play, but the reason that I cycled this choice up in the list is because I've noticed a funny thing about sandboxes and player agency. So I've recently all but wrapped... Uh, the RuneQuest Big Rubble playtest game that I've been uh, talking about for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say all but in that if we ever get the actual full group of players who are putatively been playing RuneQuest, then we'll have the big finish. Right. Uh, but until then... Until then, they're just going to be beaten on by ducks. Right. Um, in part because uh, Sandbox and uh, Irregular Attendance turns out to have an unexpectedly difficult relationship with one another. You would think a game where the players can just tool around doing whatever it is that they want would be great for episodic play. Turns out that means that there's an extended emergent continuity that you're supposed to know and learn and care about. And the fact that players were dropping in and out made it actually harder for them to engage with 
a player-driven situation. And also, at the end of it, uh, one of the players observed that he felt that he did not have a lot of agency. And this, I think, brings up a question of what does agency really mean? Because it's, uh, in theory, uh, except for the fact that they were expected to remain in a location, there was a microcosm of everything in the world that had... Mm -hmm. Every cool thing about Glorant that you could possibly want to interact with is in some way in the big rubble. In cowboy form. In in cowboy form. But nonetheless, uh, not everybody in the group felt that they had agency. So what does that mean? Is uh, too many choices equal uh, no choice at all? Or what is the... Uh, are we talking about something completely different when we talk about agency as we often are with railroading right um and i think in both cases uh that makes us want to talk about it's not just about the choices that the players are presented with but whether they like those choices and how they uh choose to interact with yeah them. so but, but this this sounds like a player who is not actually complaining about a lack of agency they are pl complaining about the presence of consequences for the choices that they made is that the case because you hear that a lot. It's like, oh, I didn't get to do whatever I wanted. It's like, well, no, once you stabbed the king, you became public enemy number one and every man's hand was turned rightfully against you. And you were hunted down by elite anti-paladins for the rest of the campaign because you stabbed the king like an idiot. Because this this is the irony um, and not even assuming stupid choices, right. but the, the irony of a game that is built around choices is that encourages the GM to structure those choices like they are in real life as a series of trade-offs mm -hmm. and a more mission oriented structure leads people to, if you do X, you will get reward Y. Mm -hmm. So a mystery implies that you can solve the mystery and uh, everything's great. Whereas in an environment that you're just interacting with, the definition of that is that the environment will poke back at you right that's what um, makes it a so, fun game instead of just well admittedly i was going to say instead of just walking along the beach looking at seashells although that's pretty fun but it's only fun for about half an hour unless you're walking along the beach with your true love right so so that has no conflict in it right. and that's therefore disappointing as an option you don't feel like you have agency if one of the choices is well just go look at some seashells mm -hmm. uh, but an, another question i think is if everyone you talk to wants something from you in order to cooperate with your plan and each of them has a way of cooperating with your plan that does not fully and immediately solve all of your problems but instead leads to another problem that is also going to require you to interact with the trade-off do the players feel free even though they have all kinds of different choices and if the answer is no they don't feel free should gms of open-ended or sandbox games be building Easy choices, you know, you talk about, you have the metaphor of, you know, digging up the, the sand uh, box to find the cool dinosaurs. Is the job of the gym then to plant one of those things that's an easy, rewarding choice that makes everybody feel good for having taken it? And is the feeling of agency, therefore, the opposite of actual agency? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think in this case, uh, the question really comes down to what have your players come to expect from game night? And my players know full well that if there's a whole world of choices, every choice they make comes with trade-offs. And some of those trade-offs will be unexpectedly good results and some will be unexpectedly bad results. But none of the people's uh, in, in the world 
are just there to do whatever the players want. Or if they are there, they're there for their own reason to do whatever the players want because they want something that will draft in the player's wake. They have, uh, they know that the world exists to respond to them and that that's what makes playing in that world interesting as opposed to just sort of a, um, uh, a randomized series of fights to get things. And this is true even in my current 13th age game, which is literally a series of randomized fights to get things. But those are within a structure in which the players are making various meaningful choices about which kingdom to ally with and whether to invade India and all kinds of other things. And my thumb is on the scale a little bit because, you know, the god Heracles wants them to invade India, but I'm sure Athena wants no part of it. They just didn't ask Athena, possibly because they suspected she would say, what are you doing? <laughs> go, go, go settle down. Be good kings of whatever country you pick. Stop, stop annoying me. Um, and, and so no one wants to ask a, a killjoy goddess like Athena what to do. Um, so the, the, even to the extent that the players make the choices of, of which gods omens to listen to, they're still fully activated members of, of, of the game world and therefore just as vulnerable to being clouded on the side of the head if they um, uh, choose to start a fight with someone who happens to have a, a whole navy uh, uh, to fight with. So 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 they know that and they go into it and none of my players would ever say, I mean, they might say a lot of things about my games, but I don't think any of them would ever say we felt like we lacked agency, certainly not in a game that is one of my sort of standard games. Every now and again, yeah, they, you know, we, we go up the Nile and they're, and they feel very much, uh, agentless because they're trapped in a, in a sort of a tunnel story that, or, or a yes, gauntlet. But they made the choice to go up the Nile yeah, or did they? Or did they? And, and so th- th- there can be good natured kvetching about that, but just simply the, we have decided to do this. They know full well what their resources were. They know what full well, what the sort of, uh, panoply of responses might be they don't have a kick coming and they don't take a kick. What they do is they buckle down and try and break their characters worse, which again, it's 13th age. So it works really well. So um, we have a, we have a, uh, we, we have an understanding. It's, it's uh, like you say, it's a social contract. When people get into a game with me, they know that this is basically the, the way the world operates um, in a different game or with different players. Maybe they are having that sort of, um, I wanted agency, but not actual agency feeling. Uh, and that is something that you have to figure out. Is that what your players actually want? Do they actually want agency, but in the sense that they're the justice league and everyone else is metropolis. And so you have very, very standard, understandable responses from everybody. And most people are in fact, weaker and smaller and happy to help you. And, uh, and, and they get their sort of, um, uh, egoistic play out of the way and they have a great time and everyone enjoys themselves and they fight captain cold or whoever. And it, and it's, and it's a good time had by all, but that's a different game. Even then a game in which they're the justice league and, and there is a legitimate, you know, dark side or the society of supervillains or someone who's literally the, uh, the Legion of Doom, who's actually their peers who can make their lives worse or, you know, the United States government or something. Right. Because the, the idea of we are a bunch of badasses yeah. uh, who enjoy a lot of social freedom in the world. And we as players have a lot of choice about what to do um, seem like they are unrelated, but actually possibly they are opposed because if you have 
an open world where, right, you, you don't have a campaign where the Justice League is just roaming around an environment, taking stuff over and finding who to attack this week. Uh, the yeah. Justice League responds to missions. They mm -hmm. uh, hear an alert signal of danger somewhere and they respond to that threat. They're iconic heroes and they are in a mission structured uh, game. And so uh, implicitly, when you're creating an open ended world, you're creating one in which the player characters have to go to other people and deal with them and are not the biggest dogs on the block because if they were, what kind of game is that, right? It's like, okay, yeah, the, you, the Justice League has gone and taken over the coffee shop and yeah. <laughs> you've you've attacked the subway system this week and you've taken all the gold. Oh, wait a minute, you're maybe you're the Injustice League? Yeah. Have you, have you considered that? Yeah. So um, I guess the technique that we're groping for here then is to find... What is it that your players want when they say they want an open-ended game? Uh, first of all, if they don't want an open-ended game, don't do that. Yeah, don't do that. But if the game is, we're plopping you down in this environment, I guess it sounds, Ken, like you have sort of an implicit structure with your players where they you have uh, trained them or by process of elimination, uh, they have trained you or you know you have players who already know the score and don't have to talk about it. But I think a lot of groups think that they want a high choice game, not only for that reason, but for uh, the secondary reason is that an open-ended game requires the players to spend a lot of time discussing what it is that they want. Right. They have to think and, and plan. Who get, yeah. And who gets to do what. Right. So there's the high level, what are we trying to accomplish? And there's the second level, how do we accomplish that? And uh, with my particular mix of players, that has always been something of a challenge. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, I'm, you're not doing them a favor by saying, well, you can do anything. Because mm -hmm. really, the best possible GM technique for an open-ended game is to have a player who is very good at getting everyone to go along with what they want to do and be happy about it. Yeah. So you, that you, you need what you're really Kirk. doing yeah. is shifting the mission giving from the gm to an alpha player right. i mean that's certainly structurally the simplest um you can i and i have played games where there has been one alpha player where there have been two or three alpha players and they shift off or where there has been a bunch of beta players that occasionally coalesce like voltron into an alpha player and i've seen all of those structures operate and all of those can make sandbox play open-ended play fun and and rewarding for everyone or more to the point um it, it can still be fun if a bunch of gamma players are just noodling around touching things uh, i enjoy that as a gm because i enjoy the sort of travelogue pinball nature of sandbox play so very much and they enjoy it because i'm a very good gm in the moment but in terms of is this a satisfying story eventually no and even the, the 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 bunch of gamma players touching things eventually touches something so hard that they've given themselves the mission of escape or stop the the last thing we touched and then that becomes as you suggest a more standard mission uh based game and i think most uh sandbox games turn into mission games if only because as you say either the players give themselves their own mission or in my case sometimes the world gives them a mission because they you know picked up the wrong dinosaur or, or the absolute right dinosaur and i think that a lot of that is because mission play quote unquote is basically kind of the definition of continuing narrative and if you want that as opposed to pure picaresque 
you're going to wind up, someone's going to give someone a mission, whether it's the God Hercules, whether it's a player uh, with the best idea about what's going on in the world, or whether it's an NPC who says after them, and then it becomes a chase, right? Right. So uh, possibly uh, with a group who you're not necessarily sure are all uh, intrinsically set up to play this kind of game, you might have a session zero that's not so much about the uh, characters as about what the players want as a group and what they're going to meld together and mm -hmm. do so that you describe the environment and say, what do you want out of this environment? And who is going to be the character that the rest of you all defer to? <laughs> yeah. And who's, what is it that you as players all want your characters to achieve in this environment? And uh, what is your way of resolving uh, discussions as to uh, who's going to do what? Uh, and again, in a game where you have spotty attendance, the decisions get made by whoever's there that week. Right. And so uh, I think that also it's a necessary feature of a game where people don't uh, always pop in that you can't just constantly relitigate last week's right. decision yeah. about what to do. You, you were saying that you actually have a, a house rule to that effect that you, you can't, no one gets to argue. Why are we in this dungeon? Yes. Cause you, weren't you, you here get last to week. say, right. You get to say, why did I agree to this again? But the idea is that you agreed to it again, right? That functions, but on the emotional level, the player who didn't make it to last week's, uh, session and therefore didn't have any input into why they are doing X by definition feels that they have a, a sense of agency. So I yeah. guess I'm returning once again to my, the top GM tips for an open-ended uh, game are to have the players to drive the game yeah. uh, who can both show up consistently and agree on what it is that they want to do and um, uh, sort out uh, tactical questions fairly efficiently. Because by right. definition, if you are shifting the power from the GM to the players, the players then have to be the ones who take the reins. And if you mm -hmm. have a group who would sooner just sort of show up on the night, find out what the deal is and kind of go along... Uh, that you you want to maybe think about mission structure, uh, assuming assuming they can even get uh, be bothered to show up on the night, which is a whole different topic. And I will say that you know not every game that I run is is sandbox. I run plenty of mission structured games, and in fact, odds are, unless the players uh, demand something different, we're going to do a more mission structured game next game, just because. As you say, it, it, it makes a change from having to keep the entire world map in your head and, and make your own uh, strategic decisions and whatnot like that. And then the act of rebelling against the mission giver, if that's what the players decide to do, can be a thing that's a relatively standard part of these sorts of stories anyway. And you can play it out or not play it out, depending on whether or not the game feels like that kind of game. Uh, in the moment, right? Right. Well, speaking of discussions that go on for too long, this segment, it's gone on too long. Let's get out of here. Let's go. They tried to suppress it. They tried to contain it. They left it for months on a loading dock in Estonia. But it's finally out at the Pelgrane Press web store or a top retailer near you. The most ambitious project yet 
from Gumshoe Master Robin D. Laws. The Yellow King role-playing game. Six pounds and four books of uncanny and exciting innovation wrapped together in an enthralling slipcase. Inspired by Robert W. Chambers' classic tales of reality horror. Reality, you say? We've got four of them to drive your terrified players through. Bellapoc Paris, where art students navigate its absinthe-soaked demimonde, investigating gargoyles, vampires, and decadent alien royalty. The Wars, where weirdness-savvy soldiers fight for survival and gnosis on the eerie shifting battlefield of Europe's 1947 Continental War. Aftermath, where former partisans mop up the otherworldly remnants of the hundred-year tyranny they helped to defeat. This is normal now, our ordinary present day. Or is it? Spoiler, it is not. Featuring the debut of Quick Shock Gumshoe. Where physical injuries and mental shocks don't just tick down as abstract points. They haunt you as fiendish cards with debilitating effects and tricky discard conditions. Add it to your cart with Absinthe and Carcosa, a stunning full-color found object player-facing guide to 1890s Paris. And The Missing and the Lost, Robin's novel of intrigue and parageometry set in the aftermath reality. Get the Yellow King role-playing game. Before or it gets you. If cursed, do not return to store. For a limited time only, save up to $23 when you bundle Yellow King products at the Pelgrane Press store with the voucher code YELLOW. Get 15% off all Yellow King items when you combine the core game with Absinthe in Carcosa and or The Missing and the Lost. That's the voucher code YELLOW at pelgranepress.com slash shop. The clattering of pots and pans, the delicious smells wafting up, and the sight of, well, well, no, I was going to say well-thumbed cookbooks, but those cookbooks are sitting over on the shelf. Uh, what's well-thumbed here looks like it's a Kindle with a bunch of recipes downloaded onto it somehow because we're fancy. We're talking tech. We're talking gadgets. We're talking Robin's new air fryer. And Robin, in my in my experience, the only kind of air fryer is the thing that makes popcorn. And that's a lovely thing, but uh, I would not try to make anything else with it. Uh, you right. have discovered something better, different. The, there's a new that the, the instant pot of which we have previously rhapsodized is exactly. is now the old game and tap. old hotness. It is right. it is old hat. The new the new hip thing uh, is the air fryer. So I decided since uh, gaming is my job, so cooking is my hobby. Uh, mm -hmm. Decided to cash in a couple of years of unspent uh, Christmas money and get myself uh, not just an air fryer, but the Apache helicopter of air fryers, uh, which is the Breville smart oven with air fryer. Ha. And so my, my mom has wanted to buy me a Breville smart oven uh, for Christmas for like the last two Christmases. And uh, now, now possibly if she listened to the show, if she doesn't, she would be like saying, ha ha. Right. Or, or you can just say to her, when you get me that air fryer, make sure you, or that smart oven, make sure you get me the air fryer model, which is their, their newest version. Um, right. And so you will see other air fryers that are closer to the size of an instant pot. Um, but this is the Breville smart oven is, uh, not a small appliance. It's a mid-sized no, appliance. It's a, it's a big old deal. It's like getting a, a new good microwave right. in terms of um, size. And uh, I got to say, uh, first of all, I was uh, 
I ordered this on Amazon and was somewhat surprised, in fact, by how, how big how big it is. Glad mm-hmm. I'm working out because I had to uh, carry it up to uh, two flights of stairs uh, to get it into the kitchen. So uh, there are smaller ones. And of course, the trade-off there is that if they're smaller, the cooking surface is also smaller. And the number of things, items that you can air fry at any given time is also therefore smaller. So, and one of the things about uh, air fryer cooking, um, and let's back up a step uh, and explain uh, what it is as we, we get to this point. So That's make not sure a get terrible idea, this other I feel point. like. Um, and so uh, an air fryer is basically just a super duper powerful uh, convection oven that allows you to create stuff that tastes like fried food uh, in every respect, but didn't go into a deep fryer, but instead the air moves so quickly and the air is so hot that if you just have a very thin layer of oil on top of whatever it is that you're cooking, it comes out as if it has been deep fried. Right. And the thing about a deep fryer, the actual thing where you put in a lot of oil and, and you know, that, that standard uh, small appliance is that a deep fryer wants to kill you. The only question is, is it going to kill you fast in a fire or is it going to kill you slow right. by yeah. having you this absorb is, This is why I am forbidden from owning a deep fryer, by the way, is Sheila's like, I want to be in control. This is literally what she says, because this is her. I want to be in control of when the paramedics arrive. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, and the danger posed by the, by the uh, air fryer uh, is... Uh, the aforementioned uh, carrying it up the stairs. So you, right, yeah. You, you want to be ready to carry a large appliance up the stairs. Um, so the way that it works is you take uh, whatever it is you're preparing, whether that's French fries or uh, falafel like I made last night mm. or uh, fried chicken or uh, whatever it is, you coat it in a layer of oil and you have to uh, make sure that they're uh, – uh, in most cases, the recipes tell you to make sure that the things are not touching, that there's some distance right. between them so that the super hot air can get can out. Can get them. around them. Um, this actually matters less for some things than like other things. Like you can't, it's unrealistic to think that you can put French fries uh, in their sort of air basket uh, thingy and have them not touch each other. And yeah. it doesn't much matter uh, that they do touch each other if you put it in for the right amount of time, they'll come out and they will seem like French fries. Mm -hmm. So uh, what we're dealing with here then is healthier fried food. So that if you are, have been advised, for example, by your doctor nutritionist to remove all oil from your cooking and are cooking with uh, say, for example, chicken stock instead of oil, you do not want an air fryer. That's not going to, you're not going to be able to use it properly. Right. Um, but for the rest of us who might just put a little bit of oil in a roast pan when we're roasting vegetables, for example, it's the same amount of oil or perhaps even a little bit less. Yeah. So the, the trade-off that you will face while deciding uh, which air fryer to buy if you're buying an air fryer is between one with a small cooking surface that allows you, because you don't want things to touch, to have make four to six onion rings at a time <laughs> in a series of batches mm-hmm. or get the bigger Breville uh, smart oven air fryer uh, for which I had to buy an additional piece of furniture <laughs> to have a place for it to sit on or rather to take the place of the other thing that I had to put it on to sit on. So that enables you to make a whole, not necessarily a whole meal because we there's rarely a meal where the whole thing is just a fried food, right? Uh, but the whole yeah. amount of what you want, <laughs> with, with, with the exception of parts of of, of uh, God's holy republic, where yes, but yeah, ideally no, you have uh, a fried thing and then there's something else, right? You have some sort of you know even for with fried chicken you will want you know rice on the side or a salad right, or yeah. something. So um, uh, unlike the instant pot, the whole 
you know, a platonic ideal situation there is that every, everything in the meal is in the instant pot and it's a one pot mm-hmm. thing. Uh, here, you will introduce timing issues as you're learning how your uh, air fryer works and how long it takes to preheat and how long it, you then have to coordinate the timing of whatever your side is, unless it's, you know, and it may lead you to make uh, slightly more salads because you don't have to time mm-hmm. them. Uh, so that is an issue that it will introduce into your uh, cooking. And the other big one is just that there will be a steeper learning curve in learning to use this than even with the Instant Pot, because like the Instant Pot, but dialed up to 11, the current group of recipes that are available uh, are probably all. Yeah, off. right. The, the, no one has worked on, worked on long enough. We don't have the um, uh, we don't have the algorithm set. Yes. Um, and so, for example, I find that almost every uh, recipe I look at needs to have a higher temperature than the temperature that's being suggested and uh, needs to have a couple more minutes uh, cooking time. And it took me a, a while to get to that. Uh, the Breville sort of suggests a high cooking uh, temperature of like 400 degrees and uh, as its default. And then you, you can go up and down from there. Whereas the default temperature you'll often see in the recipes seems to be pegged to just a regular standard oven, which is totally wrong. The whole point of the air fryer is that you want the, the air very hot on the right, outside yeah. of the food so that it creates a crispy coating. Uh, the other big learning curve that I uh, underwent was figuring out how to do a battered coating. And I found a lot of recipes that uh, just didn't actually work. And it took <laughs> me a, a, a certain amount of experimentation in order to get to the uh, ideal air fryer batter for uh, chicken or for uh, vegetable fritters. Or so what so what's you. the secret to um, uh, what's the batter uh, smart? Play? So my, my secret is that, first of all, think of something sort of sticky and delicious that goes with the food that you want to fry and marinate whatever it is or coat it in that first. So for example, uh, for your fried chicken, uh, you uh, get cream barbecue sauce and marinate it in, in mm-hmm. that or a little bit of gochujang paste, or uh, I, uh, I'm sure at some point I w- I'm going to experiment and uh, um, have them in honey for a little bit so that there's something uh, sticky yet flavorful that matches what it is that you're doing uh, that will be the first thing that uh, causes the uh, batter to adhere to the food. Right. Um, the food photography that goes with air fryers looks suspiciously uh, too good to be mm-hmm. true. And certainly the, the methods described do not get you to anything that looks like that food. Right. Photography. But if you coat it in uh, in something first, then you uh, dip it in egg and then you put it in either flour or a mixture of flour and breadcrumbs, uh, that will get a, a batter that actually works in the air fryer. Because so like what you're you, making a schnitzel, basically. Right. Because what you don't get with the air fryer is the effect where something is dropped in the hot oil and the hot oil seals the the coating to the food the delicious breading right right so for example you can't do a, a deep fried mars bar uh, in the air fryer <laughs> I, that sounds like a, a terrible idea for so many different reasons right but it's, there are places where that is done and the air fryer unlike your deep fryer like i said not trying to kill you no i'm here to tell you a deep fried mars bar is delicious i've had them but but yeah not in an air fryer that's basically a way to right. have to uh, scrub tiny pieces of caramel out of your air fryer forever. Exactly. So you don't want to do that, but just basically any other, anything else that could be, uh, have a lovely batter on it, uh, you can do. So, uh, for example, the other night I made tandoori parsnip fritters. So I uh, took pieces of parsnip and cut them up into ni- nice flat 
wedges and uh and uh, that's sort of the ideal uh shape of something to be air fried is something kind of kind of flat and and with a lot of surface area and then i uh coated them first of all in tandoori paste and then in egg and then again in the uh, the flour uh, mixture and they were uh, uh, super delish uh, uh, last night I made falafels uh, and uh, it does equate a, a, a creditable uh, falafel patty so that's uh, uh, so it's, it's overall it's really expanded the list right. of things and uh, being able to make you know french fries at home uh, I think over time that would have been worth the five hundred dollar purchase right, price yeah. right there that would have that, that would amortize exactly, yeah but uh, it's actually there's a lot more that you can do. I would never have made fried chicken at home and made quite creditable fried chicken. And, um, and on the, I make amazing uh, fried French chicken. Fries. I'll just point out. And I do it in a conventional, uh, uh, well deep, but conventional skillet. I, I don't deep fry it. I, I skillet fry it, but, but my fried chicken is amazing. And, uh, I'm, I'm and sure it took it years of, of, of work to get the algorithm, right. I'll give you that. Right. Well, it, it took me months of, of fiddling around, and I think I got decent fried chicken on attempt number mm-hmm. two, so that's, that's not all right. too bad. And also, in addition to, of course, the the French fries that will be uh, happening a lot in your air fryer, uh, might I recommend, uh, if you if you like a yam, uh, it does great yam fries, or uh, uh, just uh, parsnips without the coating are also good, and also uh, butternut squash fries are yeah. uh, uh, super tasty. I think, I think this is um, sort of the... Uh, the sneaky uh, killer app of the air fryer then is because if you don't have a deep fryer already, and even if you do, if you have a deep fryer, odds are that you're not thinking, I will take a number of healthy gourd-like vegetables and fry them. You're thinking, how many donuts can I make? And I think if you, if you've got the air fryer and you've got the, these, uh, your, like you say, parsnips or squash, or um or any of the the butternut squash or or whatever um the ability to make crisp roasted uh, or fried versions of that is is probably kind of a killer thing because that does actually provide something that tastes like starch without being super starchy and that will you know just the ability to swap out super starch heavy super carb heavy food for that I think that if you're, you know, a keto person or, or whatever they call themselves now, anyone going on the anti-carb uh, uh, crusade, uh, the air fryer may be your your secret weapon there because you can you can fry up all of your non-carb veggies that you are eating instead of potatoes, and suddenly your life is better, right? Yeah, and if you put a little bit of flour and breadcrumbs on them, I'm not going to tell yeah, anybody. That's that's up. That's between you and your keto gods. Now, uh, many of the air fryers, especially the Breville, uh, come with a whole bunch of other functions yeah. as well. Um, so I now own three slow cookers, <laughs> <laughs> my, my slow cooker, my instant pot and my air fryer. Right. Um, and, uh, why I would slow cook anything, uh, when, uh, regular instant pot cooking, uh, does a, uh, entirely credible version of any meat. I would well, if, you, if, you're, uh, if you're ever planning like a, a big, uh, picnic or a party where you're going to have a bunch of people eating a bunch of different things, making the easiest, dumbest thing in the slow cooker while you instant pot other stuff is yes, good. There's, there's the, the, the big dinner thing where you, you know, every possible yeah. way that you can make food is, is happening right. in parallel. That would be so you're making like the, the chili in the, in the, in the slow cooker and the pulled pork in the instant pot. And then right. you can have, which is why I haven't put my original slow cooker on, on the right. curb is for, for exactly that reason. So, uh, you can, uh, if you wish make, uh, cakes 
and uh, and slow cook. And of course, it's uh, in addition to being the Apache helicopter of air fryers, it's the Apache helicopter of toaster ovens. Yeah, so. right. That's and that's the other thing, right? Is that that makes uh, grilled that turns grilled cheese from somewhat something annoying you do on the oven to dirt simple. And now you've suddenly lost all of the health benefits from your air fryer, but there we are. Right. Or, you know, just you have some tortillas that you would like to. Yeah, toast you can, super you can easy make delicious quesadillas. Make nice always. and crispy and, uh, and, and, for, and for those doesn't even require uh, additional no. oil. So even uh, super healthy. Um, there are things, however, that you will see when you get your air fryer cookbook where you ask yourself, oh, this might be interesting. Like, for example, a pork belly. I want to do pork belly. And uh, I did pork. Uh, belly in my air fry and it's like i don't know why i bothered to do that because if it's something that you wouldn't normally fry or wouldn't normally toast mm -hmm. you don't want to bother doing it uh in in the air fryer i guess uh part of why it does all these things is that if you're in a small apartment and for some reason you know your landlord uh, won't fix your proper oven that your apartment came with or you don't even have one it's a bachelor apartment mm -hmm. this could sub but in a lot of ways you know for a, a one person or a family of two, mm -hmm. this could, you know, almost serve as your oven for a lot of yeah. stuff. But if you're not doing that, there's a lot of recipes that you will see uh, where you're being proposed to, uh, doing something that you could do in another way, in a suboptimal way. Right. Uh, and so yeah. you don't want to don't don't bother doing that. Um, the uh, I do know a bunch of college uh, students who have a toaster oven of whatever degree of fanciness as their only heating appliance. And if you are rich college students and have a Breville, but somehow are not in an apartment with an actual oven, I think that that would be really helpful. But by and large, I think the sort of general rule out of all of this is uh, if you're buying a specialty gadget, use it for the specialty thing, not for the sort of C version of a different gadget. Right. That's right. sort of the general kitchen rule. Uh, don't don't mash your potatoes with the ricer um, uh, and don't rice things with the potato masher. Right. And and think, you know, the variety of what you can make in it is important. But also, if the number one thing you make in it is a staple, it might be yeah. worth it. Just, just like, you know, if, if you marketed the Instant Pot as a risotto maker, I would have been perfectly happy to have purchased <laughs> it just... just to make easy risotto every week. Um, but of course it does uh, much more than that. And again, you know, the French fry is still the, right. the killer app of, uh, of any air fryer. Well, there you go. Uh, well, um, I'm getting a little hungry, so I Maybe, think uh, it's yeah. time for us to go, uh, go get some of those, um, uh, tandoori parsnips and, um, mm -hmm. meet back at the, meet back at the next hut. Okay. I'll see you there. swords without sorceries nada what are sorceries without swords bopkiss thank goodness then for arc dream publishing's shane ivy award-winning co-author of delta green the role-playing game exactly that shane ivy who brings a haunted world alive for fifth edition fantasy with swords and sorceries explore 
Crumbling civilization separated by a dangerous sea and wild lands. Encounter surprises and exotic dangers. Seek your fortunes. Or find gruesome death. In the tombs of forgotten gods and evils best left buried. Swords and Sorceries draws blade-slinging inspiration from ancient history and the myths and folklore that inspired the oldest RPGs. Seize all three Swords and Sorceries adventures today. The Sea Demon's Gold. The Song of the Sun Queens. The Tomb of Fire. Play in the Broken Empire or adapt them to any 5th edition campaign. Order and find bonus downloads and resources at swordsandsorceries.com. That's Swords and Sorceries from Shane Ivey. Keep this podcast crispy in a good way, not crispy in a toast way, by joining such Patreon backers as... Carrie Shutrick. Pedro Garcia. Stephen Hammond. Derek Heimforth. And Andrew Cowie. The yellow tape around the outside, the chalk outline we had to step over, the gruff inspector looking away from another mutilated corpse welcomes us once more into the crime blotter. And here in the crime blotter, we are once more traveling back in time to the misty, wonderful days of 1895 in Paris. The yellow crime tape has a yellow sign on it, Ken. Right. And the gruff inspector is smoking a Galois because we're here to talk about the father of modern forensics with all that that implies. For good and for ill. Yes. Uh, and maybe a lot of ill. Maybe, maybe more ill than good. Who can say? Yeah. But anyway, we're talking about our buddy... Alphonse Bertillon. And Bertillon is, I think, best known by people now for a thing that he fought tooth and nail for 25 years, uh, fingerprinting. But there was so much more and so much right. crazier to him. And by our buddy, we mean not our buddy. Not our buddy. <laughs> not our buddy. <laughs> Let's get that on the table. All right. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, in 1895, the year of the Yellow King, he's 42 years old, and uh, he is uh, seven years after having invented the actual thing that he really unequivocally in invented that is still uh, intrinsic to uh, police science, which is the mugshot. In fact, sometimes you will see those, uh, you know, history and pictures Twitter accounts that Twitter decontextualized uh, photos to give you historical misinformation. Sometimes you'll see one of a child's mugshot from the, the turn of the century of France. And what it doesn't tell you is it was Bertillon taking a joke mugshot of his young nephew. Mm -hmm. But he did, in fact, uh, invent uh, the mugshot as uh, photography became uh, widespread enough and uh, the ability to take a picture quickly uh, became part of photography. Obviously, we all remember the daguerreotypes earlier where the, everybody has to look like a, uh, a flat face zombie because they can't move their facial expression. Well, you can't make a mugshot in that era because, of course, anyone who doesn't want their picture taken, for example, a, a, a prisoner of the police could just wreck the photo. But when photos got good enough, he was the one who said, we should get a good shot of everybody and have a profile and a head on and have a, like an identifier in the shot. And this will be enormously useful in identifying uh, criminals and will supplement uh, the 19th century tradition of big books full of descriptions of particular crooks. Uh, and some of those are still available. You can find them online in various public domain uh, sources. So the mugshot is unequivocally uh, Alphonse Bertillon, but um, he moves on from there to his real passion, which is deciding how uh, physiognomy and the way people look determine and reflect their innate biological criminality. And uh, uh, anyone who knows any history know knows to go 
Oh, that's the ill part oh, that Ken and Robin are foreshadowing. Uh, so he works at La Sante Prison in Paris, where he is busily subjecting prisoners to his uh, system of measuring uh, particularly facial features uh, to determine how bestial uh, people are. Uh, and if you're wondering uh, if there is a, a racist element to that, uh, yes, yes there is. is very much so <laughs> and and uh in in fairness to bertian which are not words you're going to hear a lot on this show or maybe you'll hear them a lot because it is important to sort of put some silver in amongst the gray uh bertian got a lot of these because he was not a trained anthropologist he was a trained nothing his father and his brother were statisticians and he was not one, uh, but he wanted to be one. And uh, he fell in with a bad crowd of Italians who were trying to develop criminal profiling uh, physiognomy as, you know, how high is your eyebrows? Will that make you a criminal? And so Berdion doesn't come up with this, but he embraces it because He's all about how high are your eyebrows as a way to identify you. Because in an era before uh, driver's licenses, in an era before fingerprinting, uh, there was no way to tell that this guy that you've got up for a bread stealing rap is the same guy that you let off on five previous, you know, old lady beating raps uh, because he just gives a different name and he gets away. And so Berdion's goal is to provide a physical measurement of everybody such that that system uh, can't be dodged. So it's like, oh, your middle finger is X number of centimeters long. Your foot is X number of centimeters long. Your eyes are X number of centimeters apart. It's basically what we call now biometrics. Uh, when the computers are all doing it to us at the airport, Berdion invents that. He invents these sorts of ways that you can figure out a person's actual identity from things you can't forge, which are the length of your bones. And of course, that has a lot of medical problems with it to begin with over and above the sort of invasion of human privacy. And as you point out, Robin, it, the the way that he gets anthropometry sort of adopted by the whole government is during a panic about uh, what they called vagrants and what we would call Romany. And uh, it was basically a way to keep track of, uh, of Romany in, in France, un-French people who were wandering around France, getting up to activities. And they forced all of them by law to carry a Bertillon card that would give all of their measurements and uh, and be measured regardless of their actual degree of criminal history or not and that was uh that that was uh, a little a little bit later than this era this is when they're still building up the big criminal databases but even by 1895 he has been uh, in charge of police statistics uh for i want to say 13 years um, he, he starts off in the police department just as a copyist in 1879. By 1882, he is basically turning the Surete's method of criminal identification over because with his sort of ad hoc Bertillon card system that he was doing in his spare time, he identified 200 recidivists and, uh, that impressed the, the police. And so they, they said, oh ho. And that's what sort of gives Bertillonage its big, uh, push forward. And there are, there are false positives. There are people who are bribed to change records. There's lots of other holes in the system, but it's the first anything that lets the Paris cops know if you're the same guy they arrested in a different arrondissement two years ago. Right. And of course, that's all 
with uh, advanced technologies, all still uh, still going completely on. intrinsic yeah. to all police work. And if, if anything, there's more photographic. Im- you know, we're all having our mugshots constantly taken uh, as we move through any public environment mm-hmm. now. And uh, it also has to be said that uh, you know eugenics was. Um, widespread uh, at this time became even more widespread and was uh, for a time widely adopted on both sides of the political fence. Yeah, something it was that, uh, it was not a question of are you politically right or left. It's a question of are you scientific and modern or are you not scientific and modern. So in America, the big anti eugenics forces were William Jennings Bryan who admittedly would have been a disaster as president, but he didn't like that eugenics because it was against God. And so uh, when the player characters uh, meet him at Lasante prison, he uh, is conveniently for uh, someone that we uh, want to portray in a, a negative uh, light, probably uh, famously not a, a swell or personable person that both the guards and the prisoners there uh, uh, quite dislike him. And he doesn't seem to notice that. Uh, so, uh, part of a long tradition of people who are using science uh, to type others, uh, perhaps uh, being somewhat lacking in the uh, social awareness area. Um, in uh, The Yellow King, of course, the uh, idea of that uh, the masks and faces are sometimes indistinguishable is, is core to that horror mythos. So it could very well be that uh, he discovers uh, something going on with strange interlopers whose uh, uh, faces he studies and discovers are, um, are not quite human. And what does that mean? And uh, in the world of the Yellow King, perhaps that could lead him to a, a revelation that makes a kinder, gentler Alphonse uh, uh, Bertillon. Um, and we alluded uh, to, uh, as well, the question of his role. He's often sometimes credited as the father of the fingerprint. But uh, as you suggested, Ken, uh, it's a lot more complicated than that. Yeah. At the, t- at the same time that he's coming up with the anthropometry, the measuring everyone's skull and fingers and feet methods, uh, there are a lot of other people who are working on fingerprints. And those include the father of eugenics, Francis Galton, but it also includes plenty of people in Italy and Denmark and Argentina. And they're all of them discovering simultaneously, basically, that fingerprints are unique to people and that if you could figure out a way to describe these fingerprints, uh, you could start passing fingerprints around because that's a lot faster and easier than getting people's skull measured with calipers. Because of course, even the same prisoner measured twice by the same prison authority sometimes has different skull sizes because the calipers are sticky that day or the guard was bored or the prisoner was squiggling around. And so, you know, anyone who's tried to, you know, measure a, a, a toddler just to determine how, how big their, their shoes are knows that a big burly prisoner is going to give you at least that much trouble. But Bertion doesn't like fingerprints because there isn't a space for them on his form, basically, and he didn't invent them. And so <laughs> that's, that's very French. No he, space spends, on the form. He, he spends, he spends decades fighting fingerprinting in Paris and, and blackguarding it and saying it's not real and it's not as good. People can, you know, uh, have their fingers uh, cut off. Or, or put them in acid, or there's a million ways to get around fingerprinting. I just told you two of them, but I'm sure you can think of the others. Yes, the word fingerprinting isn't named after me. Right. That's not, it's not Bertillonage fingerprint. Uh, it's some other, it's called dactyloscopy, for gosh sakes. That's a dumb name. And, and so he, he, he basically sort of uh, slows the adoption of fingerprinting in France for decades, but eventually the rest of the world sort of 
goes around him and says, yes, measure everyone's skull, but also maybe just take their fingerprints. That's fast. And, uh, in, as you say, in 1912, he, uh, finally comes around and he writes Bertillon on fingerprints, basically, which is, all right, everyone, if you're going to do stupid fingerprints, here are the 16 things you should look for in each fingerprint. And those are the unique papillary characteristics of a fingerprint. And I'm done now. I'm out. And uh, basically, he dies right after writing that paper. Right. And that paper is is rife with forged data uh-huh. and uh, phony information uh, because Bertillon also uh, pioneers the uh, longstanding forensic science tradition of making stuff up yep. that the police want you to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the exemplar of that is during the Dreyfus Affair, which we have covered uh, before on the podcast, uh, where uh, he was requested by uh, people trying to frame Alfred Dreyfus to uh, analyze his uh, his handwriting. And uh, he was given a, a sample of handwriting by the actual culprit and identified it as Dreyfus's with his extensive handwriting analysis uh, background, which, of course, was nothing. It was non-existent. Yes. And this is very much a, an issue that continues to this day, where a lot of forensic science techniques were made up by weird cranks who uh, give the uh, police and prosecutors the testimony they uh, desire. And there's a lot of things that you might think are real from uh, particularly from watching forensic uh, TV shows that uh, maybe somebody mm-hmm. just made up, uh, including uh, bite mark and uh, blood spatter evidence uh, seem to uh, both have a whole lot of nothing behind right. them. There's um, also, of course, the longstanding tradition of the forensic laboratory just not doing their job or, as you say, deliberately falsifying evidence. The FBI forensic laboratory, which I think is arguably the best one in the world, was rocked by scandal a few years ago. And then everyone sort of stopped talking about it when they discovered that they'd basically just been making up the results of a bunch of their tests uh, because it was hard and they had a quota to meet. And so they just didn't bother. They say, hey, he's probably guilty. He looks guilty. Look at the size of his eyebrows. Yes. We wouldn't have arrested him if he wasn't guilty. Right. And so over and above the sort of systems in which the uh, the, the rights of the accused are deliberately trampled, like in your various uh, terrorist trying systems. There's also, it turns out, just even the regular FBI is just screwing around and, and, and not doing anything. So between the fact that it's junk science and it's not practiced correctly and they don't even bother to do it sometimes, it does leave you a sort of question as to whether or not the creation of uh, forensic science is, as we alluded to uh, uh, previously, an unmixed good. Uh, Berdian does invent systems for ballistics, for comparing uh, bullets for different guns. He tries to figure out how strong a person is to have busted through a door by using a dynamometer to determine the level of fracturing on a uh, broken or entered door. And he invents a compound to preserve footprints that I'm not sure is any better than plaster of Paris. But, you know, it's still there. He did it. So good for him. Bertillon Plaster. Uh, well, right. I think on, on that note, you can imagine how uh, you're going to have your players run into him in the Yellow King role-playing game, and we can uh, sneak out without having our pictures taken uh, through uh, this commercial to the final segment that waits on the other side. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled 
F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through It's time once more for that most ill-defined of huts. And this time, the Elliptony hut uh, might turn out to turn into another hut midway through. But in the meantime, we have the uh, aliens uh, hanging out in the corner, the uh, Nordic alien and the gray alien enjoying their kombucha. We're looking out the window. We're seeing the alien big cat screeching on the moor uh, because people at least want this next topic to be elliptonic or weird, uh, but it might belong in a different hut, Ken, because uh, Jamie Twine, uh, esteemed Patreon backer Jamie Twine, would like to hear us talk about Number Station, and this is certainly an alley uh, which you are up. Yeah. Um, uh, the Numbers Station, first I guess we'll talk about what it is, and this is something that if you have a ham radio or a shortwave radio, uh, you will have run across while you're dialing around trying to find uh, another ham radio person. Uh, and it usually begins with an identity uh, signal, which might be just a word, you know, attention or octung, or it might be a little tune played on a, a, a creepy recorder if you're a, a, a British number station. And then uh, there will be a, a recorded voice giving a number sequence. And then that's it. And it will repeat a number of times at a seemingly random uh, time. Other number stations, every, you know, you know that if you go, dial in at 104, you're always going to hear that number station, whatever it is. And uh, some have a set frequency and some pop around on the band through some unknown methodology of, of, of frequency setting. And so they are curios of the shortwave world. And by and large... Uh, as you allude to, uh, they abut the tradecraft hut because it is pretty much assumed and has even been admitted uh, by the good old Czech government that, yes, number stations are used to contact sleeper agents and spies. And all your sleeper agent or spy needs is a shortwave radio or ham radio. And that is super easy to have in the West. It's, I assume it was more controlled in the, the iron, behind the iron curtain in communist countries or in China today. But, uh, you listen, uh, at the given frequency at the given time that your handler gives you and you get a numbered code. And the numbered code refers to a one-time pad that you can then refer to in your one-time pad book and go off and do whatever it is that, uh, the number station has told you to do. And that seems like a ridiculous amount of effort to go to, to talk to one sleeper agent, but that seems to be the way it worked. And, uh, you only need the one transmitter because you can transmit a bunch of different signals to a bunch of different guys. And of course you can record it. And now that we have computers to do the voices, you don't even need to bring the nice lady in from the typing pool to say five, eight, two, zero, zero, five. You can just have a computer do it and uh, the problem solved. Right. And the way these numbers worked, how they turned from uh, someone reciting uh, random numbers into an actual message 
is through the use of a one-time pad, right. which is uh, still the uh, uh, sort of gold standard of uh, cryptography. Uh, and so uh, why don't you explain uh, to folks how that works? Uh, the one-time pad is that there is a, a series of codes in which generally assumed uh, assigned now by computer, but it used to be by some very sweaty guy in a basement. Uh, a, a numbered sequence has a specific meaning and it might be that it, every individual number has a meaning. It might be pairs of numbers have meanings. It might be the triples of numbers, whatever it is. And that based on that one time, you could look on your, on your sheet and say, Oh, 505 means go to the embassy and 22 means uh, retrieve the, the tape. And so I go to the embassy, I retrieve the tape. That's my mission. I've got it. I I'm go on with my life. And then you tear off that one time pad, you uh, burn it, and then that code can't be broken because the next time 505 doesn't mean go to the embassy. It means something else. Or there is no 505. There's only 50 and 522. And so it's a whole different system. And the different system is only done in such a short message that it literally cannot be broken by any decryption method because the, the, the message isn't long enough to get repeaters. And if you don't get a repeat, you never figure out what the code means. Um, and the only thing that that takes is a great deal of time and uh, forethought by the person inventing the one-time uh, pads and the ability, admittedly not trivial, to get the decoded one-time pad uh, pads into the hands of your uh, sleeper agent or uh, asset overseas, whoever that happens to be. And sometimes... Uh, they used to do things that were book codes. And so it would be like, this is from the Bible. And so, you know, you, you get two, two. And so, oh, we know that that's Exodus two or something. But of course, the trouble is there's not a lot of books that that will work with. And so you have to uh, start figuring it out and it becomes much easier just to get uh, one time pads, literally, that would be pads of paper printed on super thin onion skin. And then they would just be smuggled uh, to you in the same way that you would get your your pay or your gun or whatever other thing it is that they're you bringing pick to it you. Up at a dead drop. Right, usually. Yeah, picked it up at a dead drop um, uh, or uh, otherwise uh, gotten to you by your handler. And that and then you would just tear off uh, pieces of the pad until it was gone. And by that time, they would have got you another pad. Right. And so if you defect to your uh, opposing side and uh, have your one-time pads with you, that's a big bargaining chip. That's exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, this turns out to be uh, not quotidian at all because it's it's spycraft. Mm -hmm. uh, but before uh, everybody was sure that this was what was going on, it seemed weirder and more elliptonic. And so what... Because it sounds super creepy. It sounds super creepy. Yeah. <laughs> so in a world where fun ruiners... Are, uh, are not making uh, uh, things in everything into a spy thriller, uh, which is, you know, not very good fun ruining by turning it into a spy thriller. What, what did people uh, originally start to uh, weave around the existence of uh, number stations? What other uh, creepy, weird theories did they come up with that could be thr uh, true in a, uh, a game of weird 20th century danger? Well, this is something that a lot of ufologists and other people uh, who believe either in a secret deep state that's up to secret deep state activities or that there are aliens or electrical beings or whatever else is that the numbers stations are also their method of communicating and that either they're communicating with their own network of assets, just as if uh, the gray aliens are running, you know, teams of, of infiltrated uh, body snatchers. But the other possibility is that the numbered code that if you hear it, 
has some sort of malign Kabbalistic influence on you because numbers, of course, connect to the fundamental strands of the universe. And so if you are hearing this message, especially presaged by a weird little tootling tune, the tootling tune acts as the activator for your sleeper uh, Manchurian candidate self, or it sets you up to be uh, downloaded uh, Kabbalistic magic information uh, in the form of these numbers. And that so that there is not a, uh, the Russians aren't behind it or the Cubans or the British, but some alien force. And that either it is the mind controlling secret elites, or it is some sort of ultra terrestrial that, operates within human myth forms and that now that number stations are a big enough thing, there are also going to be ultra terrestrial number stations, just like once government agents in cars became a thing, the ultra terrestrials exuded the men in black. And that these are similarly spur of this magical secret uh, establishment uh, that is possibly not even in, in our dimension, much less um, in Moscow. Right. There could be beings who communicate uh, digitally through numbers. And uh, in that case, uh, you know, they could just, it could just be the, uh, the talk radio of uh, ultra terrestrials. You could be mm-hmm. listening to, you know, the, uh, the alien being uh, a version of, of uh, Howard Stern. Um, another uh, possibility that I, I think uh, the furthest kookiest one, of course, is that these are uh, the attempts of the dead to communicate uh, with us. And for some reason, uh, they uh, have access to shortwave radio, but are now only able to communicate in numbers. And uh, that is uh, a, a fun idea to uh, to play with. So it could be that. I mean, the, the notion that, that ghosts exist as basically electrostatic phenomenon means that um, even if the dead are not communicating with you, number stations might be an attempt to communicate with the dead. Right. That it might be a regular person, uh, not a regular person, a necromancer, but they have a shortwave radio and they're beaming out this ghost activating little song that is the beautiful song that the ghost loved as a child. And then they're trying to provide it with the most compressed amount of information that it can act on, which is uh, numbers. And that the numbers uh, either have some sort of again, a Kabbalistic meaning, or they uh, reference uh, positions on a Ouija board or some other way that they act as a way to activate a ghost. Um, And so it it, it could be one-way transmission, or it could be, as you suggest, two-way transmission. And uh, if your necromancer is into chaos magic, in which the actual reality of the thing being meditated upon does not uh, uh, really matter, that they could use the uh, Jungian theory of synchronicity to uh, employ these in uh, uh, divination magic, where uh, the uh, whatever time you decide to dial into whatever number station and whatever numbers happen to be coming up, uh, sure, originally they're um, intended to uh, uh, convey uh, information to uh, somebody in Czech intelligence, but you can also just use those numbers without the one-time pad in order to find their uh, uh, accidental true cabalistic significance and decode them uh, and uh, have a, a nice little property there. So um, what has happened to number stations in the modern era? The tight restrictions under which people from the Eastern Bloc were allowed to move around in the Western world uh, during uh, the Cold War are are out the window uh, that uh, there are uh, there are still uh, illegals, but uh, how illegal they are is is uh, uh, much less a case, and how clandestine they have to be. And in, in a to... world where you can go into the library and check your Gmail and get a, a Gmail draft uh, that never made it into the Google uh, servers, 
uh, and get your message that way. Uh, to what extent do you need to monkey around with shortwave radios? So are, are there still number stations? Well, we uh, we know that the United States charged five charged five people of being Cuban agents in 2001, and they were receiving number station signals in the 90s. Uh, and uh, so we know that something was uh, going on up until the beginning of the century. We know that there are still number stations. If you still uh, dink around uh, on shortwave, you can still hear them. Um, the the I think the number of number stations in play has gone down since the great era of the of the Cold War. But there are still uh, number stations out there, and there are various hobby groups that that track them and uh, internet uh, people that list them. The good advantage of a number station transmission is still the fact that it's uh it, it's unbreakable if you're keeping your one-time code um and you can do it out in the wildy woods you can you know you can have a shortwave radio in in lebanon somewhere that maybe you you couldn't uh get to the internet um as easily or if you got to the internet you're on your cell phone and guess what Mossad has found you now and will blow you up so you need to be able to do something that isn't being monitored at all times by uh, uh Mossad or the nsa and again it's it's not so much uh, security through obscurity it's security through antiquity monitoring every single shortwave radio transmission is a job of work and while we have a lot of radio monitoring stations still we don't have as many as we did in the cold war certainly and right and you can't tell when someone has fired up their shortwave radio in the middle of nowhere. right exactly it doesn't it doesn't send out a a ping necessarily two-way communication um unless you've got a a, literally a um uh one of those receiving trucks like the nazis to drive around in france i i I assume that if you're dumb enough to fire up your shortwave radio um as the specter plane is passing overhead they'll detect it but again they'll detect it's a radio Lots of people have radios. There's no way to necessarily say he's getting a number station transmission. Um, also, uh, one of the things that has happened is data bursts are being transmitted over shortwave that you record and then you just uh, plug it into, in, into your um, uh, descrambler or your uh, or, or your cell phone and it un data bursts it. So you can do a number station that now doesn't really so much do numbers or if it does, it does them as a way to introduce you know, this is the this is the code signal that you need. The this is the the decrypt number. It's a binary file that right, you can yeah, decode. Right, and so that happens uh, now as well. Um, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of weird stuff in radio anyway. And the more you know about radio, the more you realize the kinds of whack things that people can play with. Um, I am not an, a, 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 a ham radio gearhead, but there's all kinds of weird ways to modulate your transmission and send them differently and bounce them off the heavy side layer and whatnot. And so uh, all of those are in play in the various number stations. So it's still, it's still not a dead uh, technology, even though as, as we say, uh, modern day computer stuff is, uh, is, is beating it. I do want to go back and say, even if you're not doing a cold war game or you're not doing a modern day game, you can have a number station. We know there were number stations in 1914 uh, being broadcast uh, from Romania and Austria and Italy and all kind of places. And so uh, because there was a, a guy named Anton Habsburg, who was a radio nut and a Habsburg, which is a good combo, I guess. Um, it, although it, it does mean you're not getting a lot of dates, I guess. And he would... Uh, monitor his radio and, and write down all the number stations he found and turn it over to Austrian intelligence. So we know that they're going on in 
1914. So as early as you can have radio, which is again, Tesla and Marconi are dueling over inventing the radio right as your yellow King period is opening up. So you could even theoretically have, you know, Tesla or Marconi detecting a number station or a, a Nadar has a big experimental radio in his, in his uh, showroom. And at night, weird numbers are being broadcast over it with strange uh, little um, prefaces from a certain play being read as the identifier sign. Right. Because of course the, uh, the yellow King role-playing game, there are uh, different uh, realities and timelines. And uh, that could be a way of, right transmitting that could be that the play was actually uh, uh, written in 1995 mm-hmm. and it's being communicated uh, through a, a time slip back into 1895. Right. And through, it would certainly uh, be present in the wars and in aftermath yeah. would both be rife with number stations uh, because both uh, aftermath, the, the underground, the anti-Castain underground probably would have communicated with number stations uh, back and forth. Yeah. And in, uh, uh, in the wars, the, the, bo- the Boatnar, the uh, little typewriter like, uh, communications devices that everybody carries with them. That could be that the, uh, underlying that there's a, a sort of a number station, uh, style technology that you could, uh, uh, have a mission to, uh, intercept signals from. And, uh, and, uh, in the modern day, it could be that, uh, the binary uh, being transmitted by a number station that you then convert into a computer program turns into the the virus that uh, transmits uh, the yellow sign and slowly implants it in uh, in every icon on your computer. Absolutely. And uh, while we have uh, everybody lurching uh, for the devices that they're listening to this uh, podcast on to see if they've been uh, infected by uh, the uh, binary from an alien uh, number station, I think it's time for us to escape the consequences exactly. by ending this here episode stuff having once again been talked about it's time to thank our sponsors atlas games pelgrane press asphagel arc dream dark tower and pro fantasy software music as always is by jim simple audio editing by rob borges get your priority question asking access by supporting our patreon at patreon.com backslash ken and robin keep this podcast in one-time pads by becoming a Patreon backer, just like Will Ferguson and Fifi Pyatt, Anton Gulikov, Christopher Hattie, Dave Choate, and the Redacted Files podcast. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Snag our top-selling design, Time Incorporated, changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>